This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Every child deserves a team. That's the belief behind Jigsaw Learning, a proud sponsor of the B Podcast Network. And it's why the company, founded by educators Curtis and Lorna Hewson, focuses on ensuring success for all learners through collaborative response, an approach in which every child is supported by a team. Through customized professional learning that incorporates workshops, leadership development, online learning opportunities, and more, Jigsaw Learning can guide you every step of the way to create a plan to maximize the collective capacity in your schools. Learn more at jigsawlearning.ca. TL Talk Radio, Season 2, Episode 25. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 25 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funihatton and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funihatton. Good afternoon, Randy. Good afternoon, Lynn. Tell us about our special guest this episode. So we are really excited that we're able to catch up with Ted Dintersmith uh, on his in between his 50 state campaign right now. Uh, after a career in venture capital, Ted Dintersmith is focusing on issues at the intersection of innovation and education. He's funding and supporting a range of initiatives that seek to improve the life prospects of youth around the nation and globe. He executively produced Most Likely to Succeed and The Hunting Ground two acclaimed documentaries that premiered at Sundance 2015. He wrote, along with co-author Tony Wagner, the book Most Likely to Succeed, Preparing Our Kids for the Innovation Error. He is now leading a 50-state campaign to encourage schools to support innovation. And we'll share some of his information at the in the show notes. Also, in the fall of 2012, Ted was selected by President Obama to represent the United States at the United Nations General Assembly, where he focused on global education and entrepreneurship. He's a partner emeritus with Charles Rivers Ventures, a leading early-stage venture capital firm, and financed numerous successful startups. Ted served on the board of the Natural Ven- National Venture Camp- Capital Association, chairing its public policy committee, an independent industry analyst ranked Ted as a top-performing venture capitalist in the United States from 1995 to 1999 period. Um, He was also a senior exec at Analog Devices and worked on Capitol Hill in science and technology policy. He earned his PhD in engineering from Stanford University and his undergraduate degree from the College of William and Mary. Um, So really exciting, a very diverse background, doing some uh, very interesting work. 
and aligns well with what we're thinking about and working on in Salisbury Township School District. So welcome to the show, Ted. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to speak with you about your work. So to start off the conversation, uh, earlier in our podcast series, we interviewed the author Warren Berger, who's written the book, A More Beautiful Question. And in that book, he describes a beautiful question as one that is ambitious and actionable. And that seems to fit really well with your work. So let's start this off with, can you tell us what is the beautiful question that's driving your work? Look, I'm going to steal something from somebody that was in one of my audiences. I, I did a screening in the fall in Eastside High School in Newark, New Jersey, which is one of the schools that a lot of people point to as, uh, you know, epitomizing what's gone wrong with public education in America. But there's actually a lot of great stuff going on there. And uh, But at the end of the film, you know, we had a Q&A session. There were about 400 students in this one kid comes up to me afterwards named Oscar, and he said to me, you know, I read in history class about how America came together way long time ago and worked together to put somebody on the moon. Do you think we could work together and make our schools great? And mm-hmm. I think Oscar gets credit for the beautiful question mm-hmm. here. Now, it begs, it begs, what do we mean by a great school? And, and I think... I think that's something we need to come to grips with because all too often the definition people have for a great school is, is actually uh, irrelevant to, to its being great or act, in, in some cases downright harmful. But I think that's the question. Can we work together? Can we collaborate to do what we owe our young kids to, you know, to do for them, which is to give them a chance to have an education that will let them take on the problems we're leaving them? And in our district, we're really focusing um, right now on defining what we want our classrooms to look like in the year 2020 and moving towards that um, that defined idea about what that should look like. So what is great to us and to our community? And while we do that, we're thinking about the kinds of knowledge, skills, and dispositions that our graduates need to have to be successful. So certainly something that we can connect to within your book and wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about what kinds of knowledge, skills, and dispositions you think graduates need to have um, in order to be successful in the world? Well, I start with saying I think we owe it to kids when we insist that they're good at something in school, that we can explain why it's important in life. And w- when you use that as a filter, you can rule out a very large amount of what kids do in school. And I think so much of it is put in place just because it's easy to test, it's easy to compare, it's to rank, to start to weed out. And, mm-hmm. you know, so when I look at this, I, I feel like what we really need to do is have kids come through schools with, you know, the ability to run with their passions and use that as a window to, to learning so much more than they'll learn in, in an environment where they're just given a pile of worksheets. But I also think there's this incredible opportunity to make sure any kid coming out of high school has at least one skill that means that if they chose to go to, into the workforce right out of high school, they could, and they could get a job that they would really enjoy that would pay them, you know, a, a salary that would mean they could support themselves and a family. And so, you know, at a generic level, it's sort of like a double major theory, which is you know, let kids run fast and far with th- something they're really interested in. Ideally, that's got overlap to something that could, could plug them into society in a way that they can can contribute back that they can make a difference. And, you know, if we do that, uh, you know, I think we will have done, you know, our kids a great service. But today, you know, just to look at it realistically and objectively, today, 
most of our college graduates are coming out of college. They don't meet that criteria. They don't have the skills and capabilities to focus, the purpose, to be able to figure out how they can, can make their world better. Um, and, and so you see so many of them piling up on the sidelines, wondering what the heck, you know, where did things go wrong? They did, quote, unquote, so many things right, and you know, they're, they're essentially adrift. And, and I think the current vision of education, which has been created by these educrats, has such roots in history. And uh, we need, along with you know, people like you and, and educators like us, uh, being inspired to change that and to try and break that, those roots of history and, and come up with something, like you said, that's going to best serve our children. In your movie, in the movie, uh, you focus on... Uh, there's a there's a heavy focus on high tech high. Uh, it's highlighted as a real world example of a school that embraces this vision of of education, this more progressive vision. Tell us a little bit more about this school and how it is different from most other schools. What makes it fit that vision? Yeah, I mean the history of this is when when we started on the film. I actually had the idea. And some money to back it, and absolutely no film expertise. And so I did a six-month search to find a director, <laughs> and, and I, I found Greg Whiteley. And uh, Greg is—I mean—he's incredible. So if if people see the film and love it, they should give all of the credit to Greg. And they see it and don't like it, it was probably my suggestion that took it down. But um, <laughs> you know, when when we when we did the film, when we started. You know, it was interesting. At the very start, he had very conventional views about education. It was sort of longer school days, longer school years, more testing, catch up with Singapore and South Korea, uh, you know, mm-hmm. hold teachers accountable. Mm-hmm. And um, and I had very, in fact, quite bad ideas about how, what the documentary would be like. So it was sort of an unlikely collaboration. But, but you know, we sort of said him, and I worked with Tony Wagner on this, but we sort of said, go to these 12 places and film. And what he said to... to to me, really, because I was the one writing the checks. He said, I need you to trust me to find a story that will tell the tale here. And he said that if, if you just have talking heads and data and endless examples, it will, you know, people will nod their head, but, you know, you won't connect. You won't change anything. You really need a powerful story that, that really gets to people's hearts, not the, the logic in their brain. And so he started filming in 12 places, uh, really about halfway through. Uh, we began to zero in on the two students at High Tech High. Mm-hmm. And the reason we picked High Tech High was that you saw these kids doing something that the average audience member would say, that doesn't look anything like traditional school. And we go out of the way in the film to say, this is how High Tech High does it. This isn't how you know your school should do it, how you should do it. You should invent and create something that works for, you know, for, for your ecosystem, for your community that helps kids develop skills and, and really engages them, gets them to wake up every morning saying, I can't wait to get into school instead of dreading it, you know, calling in sick or going on strike or whatever. Um, and, and so it was really bad. And so it was more a draw to Brian and Samantha, to the way their projects played out, um, and to kind of the drama that they captured in it, which is, which is hard, right? I mean, this is the documentary. We, we actually filmed real people. And, uh, you know, yet we got this story that's almost like a Hollywood story. And, and that was, again, credit to the film team for staying with it and, and <laughs> just being really, really there and following kind of every moment. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is a great story. And what's motivating about it to, to educators like us is that we, we leave that film and we say, there it is. Some, somebody's doing it. It sort of gives us all hope that there's some way to get to that vision that we want to get to because somebody's actually doing it already. And that's inspiring mm-hmm. to see. And the other point I make is, make is that, that I think teachers, we, we don't give them nearly enough credit for how innovative they are. And, you know, as I travel across the country, I've now been to 47 states since September 20th um, and visiting just a ton of stool, schools and observing things. There's a lot of innovation in our teaching force. The problem is a lot of times, you know, there's just frictional drag in the system, often from parents who will, you know, the kid will come home and say, I had a great time at school today. You know, we're... We're going outside and catching bugs and, and, you know, understanding what's going on and everything else. And the parent freaks out and says, that's not real learning. I mean, where's the textbook? Where's, why aren't you memorizing the, these definitions? I think that's one of the big roles the film is playing in the schools that, that screen it and, and draw in a parent community. Is that it, it makes parents rethink, you know, what's the best thing for their kids? And, you know, that, that's been a big objective for us. I think it, the, the film carries today because it's not a wonky policy film. It's a film parents, parents, nobody ever leaves this film. I mean, I go, I've, I've been over a hundred screenings since, since we released this film and people don't leave. People are locked in on it. And the mm-hmm. average parent who, who isn't somebody that's reading all these books and deliberating over it, they just want good things for their kid. And they kind of at some instinctive level feel like school should be like what it was for them. And I think the film opens up their eyes to the fact in a different world, School needs to be different. Mm-hmm. And once once we open up their eyes, <laughs> how can we engage more parents and our community members to take an active role in in transforming our educational system? Well, I think the first thing parents can do is be a lot more trusting of teachers. Um, you know, it's easy, you know, to look at what's going on in school through the lens of you want your kid to be perfect. And, and then to be incredibly grumpy when something happens where your kid doesn't do well. And, you know, I get all this feedback of parents that will run interference to change grades or hassle teachers about, you didn't make it clear to my student what they need to do to get an A, as though that's doing the student a favor. Um, you know, so I think it's, it's important for parents to understand that, you know, that, that teachers, you know, if we trust teachers, and, you know, not just parents, by the way. I mean, I think it goes all the way up the system. I mean, there are... Some principals that are incredibly supportive of teachers, some aren't. You know, mm-hmm. some superintendents that are supportive, others aren't. Some I visited. I probably met with half of the, the nation's commissioners of education at the state level, and I think many are very forward-thinking. Um, some are more data-driven. Um, our brand new, you know, secretary of education in Washington D.C. I, I honestly think. He's got entirely the wrong views about what we need to be doing in our schools. And so, so you know, there's just this system level resistance to innovation, and we need to just fight against that. And, you know, I have our hope when, the, when parents see the film is they'll suddenly be on the side of innovative teachers instead of, instead of complaining about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I found uh, the movie to be inspiring, and I also found the book to be very inspiring too and and making lots of connections as I'm reading through this to sort of that vision that's in my head and and really feel feeling like there's a lot of things in the book that reaffirm reaffirm that and you've been going around the country and no doubt have encountered many of school leaders like 
Lynn, like myself, and like many of our listeners. So those of us who want to really try and move this system, what advice would you give to us leaders uh, wanting to start this transformation? What have you seen other leaders do that's been successful? What would be a good first step and a good second step? Well, there are a couple things I, I emphasize in, in that respect, and it's important, is how do you change schools? And I think for decades we've had, you know, you know these cumbersome 10-year-long committees deliberating <laughs> and delivering, you know, 600-page stacks onto the desk of teachers and principals across America. And they, you know, they're coming from Seattle, Washington, or Washington, D.C., and they're saying, we have grinded through this, and we now realize that what you need to do is X. And, and it's like teachers and students, you know, I think the thing we miss in that is that teachers and students are people. You know, I mean, you know surprise, surprise, you know. And, and people don't want to be told that you've got your assignment now is to grind through worksheets particularly when we can't explain why it's ever going to be useful to you. You know, students want to have a role in saying what they're going to learn. They want to run the stuff they're interested in. Teachers want, you know, how many teachers enter the profession because they want to, you know, be held to the task of being on page 37 of a textbook on October 17th at 1030 in the morning? I mean, no one, right? And, and so I feel like, you know, if you believe in a core strength of our country, which is innovation, and if you believe that innovation is really, you know, being, not starting a company, but being creative and innovative is an essential skill for young adults going forward, I think we need to have that permeate the way we think about change in our education system. And so I'm a big fan, you know, when we get feedback, and we do, uh, where schools show the film and they say, we're not, you know, we're not going to say every student and every teacher starting next school year has to do something completely different. You know, that that is almost certainly going to lead to resistance, complaints, you know, failure. You know, what I think is really exciting is when a school shows a film and they say, okay, teachers, who would like to invent and create something really different? You know, not like what, you know, like directly aligned with what you saw in the film, but in a way you think would be great. Students, who would like to experience learning, you know, environments that are quite different? And then hold up your hand, let's make this happen. And we've seen that happen in schools where, you know, 25% of the teachers and students will suddenly say, we're interested in something really different. And because they're empowered to do that, they have a principal and a superintendent that say, go for it, instead of saying, well, you've got to fill out this 97-page form. And, you know, what about, we might miss this smidgen of our standards if you do it that way. I mean, you know, all the bureaucratic roadblocks that just suck the energy mm -hmm. out of out of creativity. If, mm -hmm. if that's what's in the face of the, these initiatives, they will fail. But if our principals and superintendents just say, go for it, if you can explain to me how this will dramatically increase student engagement, how this will get teachers motivated in ways we haven't seen in recent years, and how this will help kids learn important skills, we've got your back. Go for it. Mm -hmm. and, and we've seen... Schools in a matter of weeks put in place initiatives. And it's not changing everything about the school, but it's changing aspects of the school. It's introducing mm -hmm. an innovative component to the school. And most importantly, it's turbocharging our existing schools because that's what I fight for. I, I feel like, you know, groups or people that say, you know, you see it in the charter movement, you see it in this XQ Super School initiative 
where they say, aha, here's how we're going to fix education. We were, we're going to have tw- you know, five new schools or 30 new schools or whatever. <laughs> you know, it, it's silly, right? I mean, it's a drop mm-hmm. in the bucket. It, and we need, to, we need to make the bucket great. We don't need to have, have a drop in the bucket. That, you know, I get high. I mean, that's a brand new school started from scratch. I mean, it, it's a great school. You know, but, but we need all of our schools to be kind of un, unleashed to, to do great things in their own way. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, you know, our, our federal and often our state policies are the exact, you know, drag on that. They, they're the things, for, you, know, you know, holding that back instead of encouraging mm-hmm. it. And, mm-hmm. and I just, that's, so that's why I'm going to every state. As I'm just sort of saying to state legislators and governors and commissioners of education, you know, you need to send a really clear signal of, in a world that banks for innovation and creativity, we're going to trust our schools to be innovative and creative going forward. So lots of good points there and certainly some actionable steps that we can take um, as leaders. You know, you mentioned High Tech High a couple of times and knowing High Tech High and having a good understanding of what they're trying to promote there, you know, very much problem solving in an inquiry stance. You know, how, how can we support our teachers and what can our teachers do in order to take that step towards an inquiry stance into their practice and begin to make some of those changes in their classroom. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things, and again, I give the credit to to Greg and his team, but in the film is we actually followed two different projects. And a lot of people, because of the way the the film, you know, uh, moves forward, you tend to, to lock in on this, you know, art and history and physics and math and shop, you know, project that leads to this great big wheel that tells the tale of um, a dozen civilizations. But there's actually another project going on, which is students doing a play. And my bet is everybody listening has a, you know, school play somewhere in their school. And there are a couple really powerful insights in, in what you see around that teacher and that, that initiative. I mean, the first is, that um, it, it's student driven. I mean, you know, they, they come to the they come to the teacher at one point and say, "Well, what should we do about this?" And the teacher says, "Why are you asking me? You know, it's not my play; it's yours. You know, unless it's unless it's like life or death, I want you to make decisions." And he turns to the camera and says, "How do we expect kids to learn how to make decisions if we never let them let them, never let them make decisions in school?" The other thing you see in his class is that his goal, and he's very direct about it, is that by the end of the semester, he's on the side saying essentially nothing. And and you think about that, any teacher tomorrow morning could go into their class and say, okay, my goal here is to get myself to the point where I'm saying 20% or less in, in my class on a regular basis. I, I would bet that most learning experiences will dramatically increase the more it's student to student, where students challenging each other, debating each other, getting out of the, 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 the mode of guessing what's on the teacher's mind, um, critiquing each other, asking questions of each other. Um, and it's actually a lot more fun and, and stimulating to the teacher to, mm-hmm. to be guiding that, to sort of be more in the coaching mode. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is, I mean, you know, like sports teams is a great example, right? I mean, I would bet almost every sports team in our schools across this country have the, you know, the, the, the tyrant, mode, you know, the, the monarch mode, you know, the, and the students are, you know, carrying out instructions. You know, it'd be very interesting to say, hey, students, um, 
we, we want you to make some recommendations about how we're allocating playing time this year. I mean, it sounds radical. I'm sure if you've got a, a coach listening, they're, they're saying, like, no way would I ever do that. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> but think about it. If, if we want kids to really understand what a constitution is about, why not let them draft their constitution for their sports team? You know, well, you know what is a constitution? It's a, you know, a framework for how groups make decisions together. And, and we just pass it on year after year after year where coach says, this is what we're doing. Players, you know, you know, toe the line. You know, and, and you see, you don't see it in a sports team in the film, you see it in a play. But I think it's a very interesting thing. If we want our kids to be leaders, if we want our kids to be effective decision makers, how much should that penetrate every nook and cranny of school? Mm-hmm. And how do we provide those opportunities for students on a daily basis throughout classrooms and also, you know, those other areas that you you described where they interact with each other in a lot of different ways, sports, activities, clubs, cafeteria, <laughs> yeah. all of those. Yeah. You know, I, I was in a, in a visiting a school in Kentucky, it's funny you say cafeteria, visiting a school in Kentucky where they gave the kids the chance to, to lead the way on the, because the kids complain, we hate the food in our school. They said, mm-hmm. okay, we're turning this over to you. <laughs> the students ran with it. They ended up taking over the entire food service operation for the school. <laughs> Do you realize how much kids learn when they've got to run the food service, you know, in their school? You know, like, you know, like heaven forbid that we would ever do that in our schools. But they, they, the, the, the adults in that school were describing this to me, and they just said, those kids learned so much more than they learned in normal classrooms. Mm-hmm. And, and they realized that, that you know, it, it's taking responsibility. It's easy to complain about things. Now you start doing it yourself. You're on the receiving side of those complaints, but you now have problems you've got to fix. You've got to be mm-hmm. creative. You've got to be collaborative. You've got to figure stuff out. You know, anyway, there, there's, there are opportunities everywhere. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. there's no aspect of school life that doesn't, I mean, you know, I could talk all day about this, but I was in a, <laughs> a third, fourth, third, fourth, and fifth grade school in West Virginia, okay? Dunbar, West Virginia. I met these student technology ambassadors. They, they had third, fourth, and fifth grade students learning all the skills to support the use of technology in their classrooms. So it's not the teacher's job anymore. It's the student's job. The students are getting trained by Apple computer for how to use, you know, app, you know, AirPlay and iPads and pick apps and evaluate apps and everything else. I, and we think about that. These kids were so proud of themselves. And, and as they walked me through this, I said, my God, these kids and fifth graders in Dunbar, West Virginia are perilously close to having everything they need to be hired by a local business to be their IT support person, mm-hmm. you know, fifth graders, you know, I mean, think about that, you know, it's like unbelievable. And that's just an <laughs> opportunity, you know, an innovative principal with a superintendent that said, go for it. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this vision, which focuses on student learning. We talked a little bit about leadership and the critical factor there in terms of providing space for teachers and students and parents and community to help make this change. Uh, and we've talked about what teachers can do, too, to, to support and move forward with the change. So one more thing that we want to chat briefly about, uh, and you write about this in, in the book, and that is the current model of higher education. In your opinion, is college preparing learners to thrive in this innovation era? 
I, I, I would offer an emphatic no. And uh, I think you've seen occasional glimpses of, of uh, inspiring things in higher ed. Um, you know, we actually filmed, in the, in, so most likely to succeed at the B School at Stanford, which I think is really profound and incredible in shaping every aspect of that university. Uh, the Media Lab at MIT, Olin College. Uh, you, you see things here and there. But for the most part, people are spending a large amount of money to learn very little. And, um, you know, it's, it's not going to end well. Um, and so if you look at uh, anybody that, that says, well, boy, I listen to this guy, I don't believe him. I, I say, read academically adrift. You know, you think about, we, we, we spend so much money, I mean, trillions of dollars on higher ed in our country. And the grand sum total spent today to determine whether kids are really learning in college was was a million dollars, four two hundred fifty thousand dollars grants that Richard Aram and Josipa Roxa pieced together to do their study, and they determined kids were learning next to nothing, you know, in college. And and you think about it, right? I mean, ask kids how much you learned in a big lecture class where you scribbled down notes and then crammed the night before the exam and mm-hmm. and took a test. I mean, that's not learning. I mean, that's that's just you know something that you kind of go through the motions on and you you get this degree and. You know, I think that the, there's this irony, right, where I, I think a recent study said 95% of employers feel colleges are doing a, a poor to very poor job of preparing their kids for, to, for you know, jumping in and really helping companies. Um, and I don't think college's sole mission should be, you know, to, to train people to be, you know, I was a, an English and physics major. I'm not a, an advocate for turning colleges into, you know, accounting programs. Um, but I think that a kid who comes through four years of college ought to hit the ground running when they get out into the real world, whether it's in a nonprofit or in a company or in a research or teaching or whatever, they should be ready. They should have something to offer. And, and I think they don't. And I think college is, um, you know, but the, the point I'm going to make is that these employers who say that the colleges are doing such a poor job still will insist, many of them, on a college degree. And, and so there's this irony, right? You know, it's, 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 it's not, it, it, it doesn't prepare you, but you have to have it. And, uh, you know, in our book, we use the, the example of Sherwood Williams, where you could join a, a local paint store out of high school and work there for eight years, be an expert on every aspect of that paint store, and they won't promote you without a college degree, which uh, I think is, you know, if, it, if nothing else shows how little confidence they have in their own ability to evaluate their employees. Um, but, it's got to change, right? You know, you, you see colleges say, wow, we are heroes. We are only going to increase tuition this year by 3%. You know, I mean, isn't that incredible? <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's like, you got to be kidding, right? You know, you, and, and you look, I, I, everywhere I go when I'm on a college campus, I take my, you know, I'm traveling all the time. And so I've got my, you know, my smartphone camera and it's so easy. What do you find in every college campus across America? construction cranes. It's like the national bird of higher ed in America is a crane. Hmm. And, and obviously they're, <laughs> they're not building, they're not building, you know, science buildings. They're not building, you know, engineering, they're building student, you know, rec centers and, and, you know, the, the, the new workout centers or the athlete tutoring facility or things like that. And, and you just say, man, you are locking in a capital structure. You're never going to be, you've got tenured faculty. You can't reduce that. You've got, you know, uh, large amounts of building and overhead maintenance, you can't reduce that. And I think you're starting to see kids, creative kids, piece together their own educations 
in different ways. And I have to say to high schools, you know, like if we did high school right, the typical, not the best, but the typical high school graduate could be ahead of most college graduates in America today. And so let's put it to the test. Let's start really turbocharging our high school educations and, and take what I'm seeing in these with these 10 year olds in, you know, in Fort Wayne and Des Moines and, uh, you know, uh, Dunbar, you know, West Virginia, you know, if we just did that, you know, the, you know, by the time you're 18, we'd start to chip away at the higher ed, you know, monopoly. But right now it's crazy, right? If the parents obsess about it, students obsess about it, you know, we, we, you know, we have the rich families that, are, that chase it like a, with a vengeance. We have a, the, the, the schools in, in more challenged neighborhoods saying we got to be like the, the schools in the affluent area. And, and I, I have to say the two most damaging words to K-12 education in America today are college ready. And, you know, because it, it makes us emphasize things in school that are actually really irrelevant, you know. And, uh, you know, so kids will read old English. I, I was an English major. I appreciate old English, but I don't think every kid should have to, you know, should, should you know, have their, their ability to be a, a good writer hinge on Chaucer or proper <laughs> footnoting. And, mm-hmm. and I don't think, you know, you look at the typical high school science in that track. I mean, it is definitions and low-level procedures. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. You know, at some point I think we need to come to our senses on that because it is bankrupt. It is depleting families' savings. It is putting kids into untenable situations when it comes to debt. And, uh, you know, you just can't say to kids in America today that to get to the starting line as an adult entering the workforce, to get to the starting line, you need to pay $100,000 or more for an education that largely revolves around sitting in lecture halls, scribbling down notes. And, you know, if, if, you know, as I say, if you don't believe me, read Academically Addressed, and you will get a very clear picture about the fact that our colleges have to deliver better learning experiences for less money. And, uh, and, and that's got to be their marching orders. It seems like in the age of uh, technology and access to so much content and information and ideas that the only thing that colleges may have left is that ability to credential something. Uh, and, you know, like we're looking at education, you know, to be a teacher, you have to have a credential. So you have to go to college to do that. But yeah. take away that credential and... If you have the passion and the drive and know how to make the connections, you can learn just about anything that you would learn probably at yeah, I, I, a higher ed institution. Yeah, and I think you're seeing some unbundling. You're seeing people trying to credential things. You know, in our film is Laszlo Bach, who you know, runs all the people operations for Google, who ran the numbers and said GPA, SAT, you know, ACT, pedigree of the undergraduate institution, uncorrelated to performance at Google. And so you're starting to see people say, well, what, you know, can we, independent of the college ecosystem, begin to identify young adults with exceptional characteristics? I think that's encouraging. But the other thing I think you see at college is whenever I ask adults, you know, for what college experiences really shape them, it's never the lecture halls. It's never the, the, the big class. It's, you know, the interaction with other students. It's uh, the, the, the maybe one-on-one with with caring faculty, there's there's a lot of learning that takes place. It's just not taking place, I think, in big lecture classes. And so, you know, and then in, in Tony's in my book, we we say, wouldn't it be an interesting experiment if 18 year olds co-resided and worked at an interesting company 
and spend a lot of time talking to each other over four years versus going to college. You know, it's a fallacy of these endless studies that show the incredible financial value of a college degree where, where, you know, the people who do it don't understand basic statistics. And so, so for sure, you know, people that have had, you know, are in well-off families that push them and push them and push them and fund their college education and help them get internships and help them get that first job and everything else, you know, they, and, and the kids that don't do that, particularly in a universe that does a, our country does a terrible job of CTE education, you know, you're going to see those differences, but they're, they're correlated and not causal. And uh, I think we're going to see that start to unbundle going forward. And that, that will be exciting for young Americans and I think painful for a lot of people in higher ed. <laughs> Interesting perspective. Well, certainly we've had um, an opportunity to hear some of the key takeaways in your book and also the movie, and it's clear you're very passionate about your work, and um, we could probably listen to you for hours. <laughs> but what what are your questions right now? What are you thinking about right now? And we like to wrap up the show um, as we started with what are, what beautiful questions are you currently thinking about? Well, I have, um, you know, three. Well, you know, one is, when will I actually spend three nights in a row in my own bed? Um, <laughs> that that, that, that seems, seems, you know, like a distant future for me. But, um, you know, I will, I will, you know, my last date will be Hawaii. And I, and I, I jokingly say after, they've got a full week for me, you know, planned there for me. And I'm really looking forward to it. And then my wife and I are going to hang. And I say, I'll be there for somewhere between a week and a year. Um, so that's a beautiful question of what I will do <laughs> on, on May 13th, I think it is. Um, but the things I'm thinking about, I'm definitely going to write a book based on this experience. I mean, it, it, I, there, there may be somebody else in one school year who's been to every single state, visited schools, and kind of had the kinds of meetings I've had. But I'm really excited about that. So that's a, a question of exactly what form that, that book takes. But then I'm just finding some incredible innovation happening at the state level at states that nobody would have expected it. And so, you know, I'm... I'm you know, planning in the, you know, kind of the next calendar year or the next school year to really try to engage with, you know, maybe a half a dozen states that are really forward thinking and innovative. And just sort of saying, how can the film, how can my book, how can I be helpful? You know, is there any way we could visualize the situation? You know, I'm in Kentucky right now. Kentucky, I think, could have in two years more innovation than most states will see in two decades. Well, that, that would be pretty incredible for our country. If people said, oh, my God, look at what it wasn't a school in Kentucky. It was Kentucky. And, you know, there are a lot of people here pretty darn determined to see if we can make that happen and, and feeling like the film could play a role in that. And so, um, so I think the second beautiful question is, can change happen in an accelerated time frame at a, at a scale beyond a classroom or a school? Can it happen in big districts, can it happen even in states? Um, mm -hmm. Because actually, that's what we need. You know, mm -hmm. if we if we don't start, you know, I, I say to people, if schools ten years from now look more or less like they look today, we're going to live in a country with fifty million chronically unemployed young Americans, and we just can't let that happen. And uh, so, you know, the beautiful question back to Oscar and Newark is, can we work together as we did? You know, Oscar described it as though it happened at the time of the ancient Greeks, but. But when we put somebody on the moon, um, we did come together as a nation to do that. And maybe it's not national. Maybe stuff in D.C. with the Department of Education is so 
hopeful symbolic stuff, which I it saddens me to say that as a big Obama supporter, but I think that's true. But I think now it's you know the control and power is really in the states, and can we see the Pennsylvanians of the world come together? Or you know I'll be in Pittsburgh May fourth and fifth, and uh, there's some really incredible community based things going on in Pittsburgh, and mm-hmm. uh, I think it's there. I think there's inspiration, there's innovation, there's advance, there's change going on all over the country, and uh, you know. How can we accelerate it and make sure no kids are, are stuck, you know, pi- you know, plowing through pounds of worksheets per week and in schools that, that think their main goal is to provide data to states and federal governments? Well, that sounds like a, a great spot to end. And we want to thank you so much for joining us, Ted. Um, for our, our listeners in the show notes, you'll see a link to both the film documentary. You can find the screening near you and you can view the trailer on that site and also the book. Um, you can actually check it out on Facebook as well. You can follow Ted at Dintersmith. Check out his website at www.edu21c.com. Uh, we'll link the report academically adrift, which Ted addressed. And certainly, Ted, we're looking forward to reading about these pockets of innovation and experiences that you've um, had on your journey through 50 states in a future book. Excellent. No, and thanks for having me on your show. I love it. Each episode, we leave you with a couple of questions to think about with the idea of provoking conversation. This episode's questions, what is your vision for transforming education? And what will be your first step in transforming your world within the current system? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just find out more about the resources and links we shared in today's episode, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season two, episode 25. We'd love for you to rate the show on iTunes. Let us know your star rating and consider leaving a one or two sentence review. If you have time to do that, you'll help new folks discover this content. That's it for now. Thanks a lot, Ted. We really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Ted. Yeah, thank you. Keep up the great work. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.